Hello and welcome again to our monthly Selden Society Lecture Series podcast hosted by the Supreme Court Library Queensland. I'm David Bratchford, Supreme Court Librarian. Because the coronavirus pandemic has placed our planned 2020 lecture program on pause, over the coming months we'll delve into our archives to bring you a range of past lectures that we have enjoyed. On the 17th of May 1628, almost 400 years ago, the Petition of Right was passed by the English Parliament. The petition was drafted by Sir Edward Cook, the subject of this lecture. As you will soon hear, Cook was at the centre of some of the most dramatic events in English history. I hope you enjoy this insightful and entertaining lecture on Cook's life, delivered by the Honourable Justice Patrick Keane AC in 2015. Last Monday, 437 years ago, Edward Cook, one of the most famous lawyers in history, was called to the bar at Westminster Hall. In 1935, Sir William Holdsworth said of him, what Shakespeare has been to literature, what Bacon has been to philosophy, and what the translators of the authorised version of the Bible have been to religion, Cook has been to the public and private law of England. And in North America, Cook has long been venerated as the common law's greatest sage. English commentators have, in the main, tended to be somewhat less enthusiastic in their estimate of Cook than Holdsworth or our American colleagues. Samuel Thorne of the Selden Society said that Cook was an unpleasant, hard, grasping, arrogant and thoroughly difficult man. As a barrister, legal scholar, parliamentarian and judge, he embodied some of the very best and some of the very worst traits of the Elizabethan age. He was vain to the point of folly He refused all his life to wear glasses, despite being profoundly short-sighted. He had an appalling temper, which led some who knew him well to think that he was mad. And he was brazen and energetic as a self-promoter. He stood out in that regard in an age teeming with brazen and energetic (laughs) self-promoters. At the same time, however, he was a courageous, passionate and vigorous defender of his views of the rights of ordinary Englishmen, with whom he was very popular. In the turbulent age in which Cook made his mark in the history of ideas, he was at the very centre of some of the most dramatic moments in England's history. Medieval and modernising ideas of law and government swirled and clashed in the dangerous currents of Elizabethan and Stuart politics. Cook's life and work were shaped by the violent tensions between conservative medieval ideas of natural law and the central importance of the customs of the realm, the radical claims of divinely ordained monarchy to absolute power and emerging notions of nationhood and sovereignty dependent upon the consent of the governed, which would in due course find fuller but very different expression in Hobbes's Leviathan published in 1651 and Locke's second treatise on government published in 1689. It would be simplistic and wrong to see in Cook's work the vindication of the modern mind over the medieval. He was too inconsistent to be neatly compartmentalised and his inconsistencies were such as to throw into doubt both the veneration of Cook as a hero judge and the very notion that the common law can sensibly be understood as the product of the work of hero judges. But the brief survey of Cook's work as a barrister, parliamentarian, scholar and judge which follows can, I think, leave no doubt that it is entirely fitting that the Australian branch of the Selden Society series on the lives of great English judges should begin with him. Cook was born, as John said, in 1552. He grew up with seven sisters in Norfolk, and following the death of his father at the age of nine, went off to school at the Free Grammar School in Norwich. He learned his Latin early, but the most important of his early formative influences was the Church of England. As Catherine Drinker Bowen says in her magisterial 1957 biography, The Lion and the Throne, there is no overestimating the effect of burning missionary Protestantism on the young Edward Cook. Morning and evening the boy knelt with his fellows on the stone schoolroom floor and chanted the Lord's Prayer and the Creed. 
in English from the recently established Book of Common Prayer. The words English and Protestant, since time immemorial they had been Latin and Catholic, they reached very deep into Cook's life. Uh, he lived and died, as his daughter was to testify, a Church of England man, a dear lover of its liturgy, constant to it in his life and at his death. In the autumn of 1567, Cook set off to Trinity College, Cambridge. That was the university favoured by Queen Elizabeth. It was, unlike Oxford, a Protestant stronghold. We tend, I think, to associate Cambridge at this time with that strain of fiery evangelical Protestantism celebrated uh, in its great Puritan graduates, the most famous of whom was Oliver Cromwell. But there were many other important, albeit less radical, Protestants produced by Cambridge. As Macaulay said, Cambridge had the honour of educating those celebrated Protestant bishops whom Oxford had later the honour of burning. <laughs> Cook was virulently anti-Catholic, but notwithstanding his later clashes with the ecclesiastical courts and the royal prerogative, his worldview remained very much in the Anglican mainstream. He was an Episcopalian rather than a Puritan, and as a committed Anglican, he was also a proud Englishman. He was an eloquent champion uh, of English legal exceptionalism. His exalted view of the supremacy of the common law of England was of a piece with his belief in the inferiority of the institutions, and perhaps the people, of continental Europe. His anti-Catholicism uh, suffused his opposition to all things foreign, such as European people and ideas generally, and the courts of equity in particular. At Cambridge, he studied rhetoric and dialectics. Disputations were overseen by the doctors of the university. They took place in Latin and in public in Great St Mary's Church in Cambridge. He became a skilful debater. After three years, he left Trinity College without obtaining a degree, which was not unusual at that time, and travelled to London to set his sights on becoming a barrister. After completing a year's study at Clifford's Inn, Cook made his way across Fleet Street to join the Fellowship of the Inner Temple, where for seven years he studied law. He, in 1578, as I've mentioned, he was admitted to the bar. He immediately travelled back to Norfolk, finding himself at the right time and in the right place for his first big case. It was a libel suit that involved great names and the abiding English controversy over religion. Cook's client was an Orthodox vicar of the Church of England. He had accused Lord Henry Cromwell, the grandson Thomas Cromwell, of sedition by reason of Cromwell's Puritanism. Cromwell sued Cook's client for damages under the ancient legislation intended to prevent people speaking ill of the aristocracy, the statute Scandalum Magnatum. Cook discovered a mistake in the written declaration of Cromwell's counsel. Only one word, but it was enough. The original act of Scandalum Magnatum had been, since its passage in 1378, translated from Latin into Law French and then into English. Cromwell's lawyer, instead of referring to the original statute in its original terms, had been content to use a third-hand English version which rendered the French word messoigne, that is lies, as messages. Translating this back into Latin in his pleading, Cook's opponent wrote the word nuncia, Latin for messages. Whereas Cook pointed out triumphantly to the court, it should have been mendacia, that is, lies. On that basis, Cromwell's case was thrown out and Cook's reputation was made. That is, career took off on the basis of this piece of pettifogging pedantry, <laughs> says as much about the legal system of the time as it says about Cook's talent as a lawyer. From 1579 to 1581, he was involved as counsel for one of the defendants in the famous Shelley's case and from there onward started to appear without a leader in important cases. In 1582, he married his first wife, Bridget Paston, who was then aged 17. Bridget was a devoted wife and, and mother. She bore him 10 children over 15 years. She also made him a very rich man. Her dowry was 30,000 pounds, which in those days was literally a king's ransom. Cook's rise through the ranks of the bar coincided with the extraordinary intellectual flowering of the Elizabethan age. Brilliant diamonds such as Sir Philip Sidney, Walter Raleigh, Edmund Spencer, Christopher Marlowe, John Donne, Ben Johnson, William Shakespeare, 
and a little later the brilliant scholars who produced the King James Bible. In 1592, Elizabeth named Cook Solicitor General, making him second among the government's lawyers to Sir Thomas Edgerton, the Attorney General, who later became Lord Ellesmere. Six months later, Elizabeth named Cook Speaker of the House of Commons. Given Cook's later reputation as a champion of the common law, it should be noted here that as Speaker of the House of Commons between 1592 and 1593, he exalted the position of Parliament as the great corporation or body politic of the kingdom, significantly for the man who as a judge would write the judgment in Dr Bonham's case, he was in the role of Speaker disposed to assert Parliament's absolute powers. Here we get an early glimpse of Cook as an example of what might be called the Thomas Beckett syndrome. That is the condition common to the great careerists whereby the beliefs and allegiances of an office holder change to accommodate the requirements of the office that he or she currently holds. Cook's time as Speaker was short. Encouraged by his evident powers of persuasion and angered by a speech given in Parliament by Francis Bacon, Cook's great rival, questioning the Crown's attempts to secure supply, Elizabeth settled upon Cook rather than Bacon as her next Attorney General. On the 10th of April 1594, Elizabeth signed letters patent advancing Thomas Edgerton to the vacant office of Master of the Rolls and granting the Attorney Generalship to Edward Cook. Cook's time as Attorney General was marred four years later by the death of his wife in June 1598. He remarried immediately. His choice of bride, Lady Elizabeth Hatton, was entirely opportunistic. Lady Hatton was wealthy and well-connected being related to the all-powerful Cecils. Cook pursued her with unseemly haste. He buried Bridget Paston in July 1598. He proposed to Lady Hatton in August, uh, and they were married in November. This was all to the chagrin of Bacon, who also had his eye on Lady Hatton. <laughs> As Attorney General in 1594, Cook prosecuted the Queen's personal physician, Dr Lopez. In 1597, he prosecuted the Jesuit priest, Father Jared, whose crime was his inability to declare without equivocation his complete loyalty to the Queen of England as distinct from the Pope in Rome. As a barrister, Cook appeared in many important cases, but there are three trials which are particularly memorable. The trial of the Earl of Essex, the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh, and the trial of Guy Fawkes. Tonight, we will have time to look only uh, at his role in the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh. Queen Elizabeth died on the 24th of March, 1603. When the news of her death reached Edinburgh, James VI of Scotland left Holyrood Palace and made for London to become King James I of England. There was general rejoicing throughout the country as James made his triumphal progress through the English countryside. But on the journey, an incident occurred, news of which spread quickly. At Newark-on-Trent, a thief was caught he had been following James's procession and cutting purses. Without any trial or hearing as to sentence, James ordered that the thief be hanged. Sir John Harrington, hearing of the incident, wryly observed, I hear our new king hath hanged one man before he was tried. Tis strangely done. Now if the wind bloweth thus, why may not a man be tried before he hath offended? Events would prove that Harrington's concerns were not idle. So far as James was concerned, the principle quod principi placuit legis habit vigorum, that is to say, what pleases the prince is the force of law, justified the hanging and anything else. Cook's vigorous opposition to this principle, both on the bench and later as a parliamentarian, secured his place in history. Trial of Raleigh. After the, after the accession of James I, Sir Walter Raleigh, and we know that's how his name really was pronounced because of a pun made by James on meeting him. James said, I have heard Raleigh of you, R-A-W-L. Raleigh had been captain of Elizabeth's guard. He sought the position of captain of the guard under James but was passed over. Uh, James took again the debonair uh, and supposedly atheist Raleigh uh, he wasn't content merely to dismiss him from court. He ordered him to vacate, vacate Durham House where he lived in London. Raleigh protested, but in vain, and royal spies were set to watch him. They noted there were late-night meetings at Durham House between various men, including Lord Cobham 
and the Earl of Northumberland. The King grew suspicious on the basis of this pretty flimsy evidence that a plot was being hatched to kill him and Rawley was arrested on a, a charge of high treason. He was kept in the tower for four months. Meanwhile, Cook gathered confessions from other, prin other prisoners, principally Lord Cobham. To speak of Rawley's trial as misleading, it was more of a, a show trial. In fact, it was really just a show. One conclusion that emerges from a study of the record of the trial is that Sir Walter Rawley was an impressive man, uh, as well as one who was not guilty of the charge that was brought against him. While Cook's conduct in the trial cannot accurately be judged by reference to the standard expected of prosecutors today, there can be knowing that there can be no denying that even by the standards of his time, his performance was grossly unfair. Cook lashed out at Raleigh at the beginning of the trial. To whom, Sir Walter, did you bear malice? To the royal children? Raleigh objected to the assertion that he bore malice to anyone. Cook continued, I will then come close to you. I will prove you to be one of the most notorious traitor, traitors that ever came to the bar. Your words cannot condemn me, replied Raleigh. My innocency is my defence. I pray you go to your proofs. Prove against me any one thing of the many that you have opened, and I will confess all, and that I am the most horrible traitor that ever lived, and worthy to be crucified with a thousand torments. Nay, Cook said, I will prove all. Thou art a monster. Thou hast an English face, but a Spanish heart. <laughs> I look to have good words from you, and purpose not to give you worse than the matter pressed me unto. But if you provoke me, I will not spare you, and I have warrant for it. You have stirred England and Scotland both. You incited Lord Cobham. Cook then proceeded to read Lord Cobham's confession that he, that is Cobham, acted with malice towards the king. Rawley responded with the obvious point, what is that to me? Here is no treason of mine done. If my Lord Cobham be a traitor, what is that to me? All that he did was by thy instigation, Cook replied, thou viper. Uh, for I vow thee, traitor, that is to say he referred to him in the second person singular, which was disrespectful, I will prove thee the rankest traitor in all England. No, no, Mr Attorney, I am no traitor, said Raleigh. Whether I live or die, I shall stand as a true subject uh, as any the king hath. You may call me a traitor at your pleasure, yet it becomes not a man of quality and virtue to do so. But I take comfort in it. It is all you can do, for I do not yet hear you charge me with any treason. Chief Justice Popham felt the need to intervene. Sir Walter Rawley, he said, Mr Attorney speaks out of zeal for his duty and for the service of the King, and you for your life. Be patient on both sides. When Cook had finished shouting at Rawley, Rawley asked, Mr Attorney, have you done? Yes, said Cook, if you have no more to say. If you have done, said Rawley, then I have somewhat more to say. Nay, I will have the last word for the King, said Cook. Nay, I will have the last word for my life, said Raleigh. Go to, I will lay thee upon thy back for, thy, for the confidentest traitor that ever came to the bar, Cook yelled. Cecil interjected, saying, Be not so impatient, good Mr Attorney, give him leave to speak. Cook replied, I am the King's sworn servant and must speak, if I may be patiently heard. You discourage the King's counsel and encourage traitors. Cook reacted in what seems to have been a not uncharacteristic display of Petulance. The report notes, Mr Attorney sat down in a chafe and would speak no more until the commissioners urged and entreated him. After much ado, he went on and made a long repetition of the evidence for the direction of the jury. And at the repeating of some things, Sir Walter Rawley interrupted him and said he did, did him wrong. Cook then shouted at Rawley, Thou art the most vile and execrable traitor that ever lived. You speak indiscreetly, uncivilly and barbarously, Rawley replied. Thou art an odious fellow, said Cook. Thy name is hateful to all the realm of England for thy pride. It will go near to prove a measuring cast between you and me, Mr Attorney, countered Raleigh. That is, it's a close-run thing between you and me. Well, Cook said, I will now lay you open for the greatest traitor that ever was. This, my lords, is he that hath set forth so gloriously his services against the Spaniard, and hath ever so detested him. This is he that hath written a book against the peace with Spain, I will make it appear to the world that there never lived a viler viper on the face of the earth than thou. I will show you wholly Spanish and that you offered yourself a pensioner to Spain for intelligence. Then let all that have heard you this day judge what you are and what a traitor's heart you bear, whatever you pretended. Cook did not even attempt to make good 
these allusions to Rawley's dealings with Spain by actual evidence. Rawley countered by tendering a statement signed by Lord Cobham, which Rawley had obtained, denying, that is to say, with Cobham denying, upon his soul, any treason on Rawley's part. Cook then presented a statement obtained by him from Cobham the day before, retracting the retraction Cobham had made to Rawley. In Cobham's later statement, he said, I protest upon my soul to write nothing but the truth. This prompted Rowley to make the right observation to the jury, you see how many souls this Cobham had. <laughs> Lord Cobham was available to give evidence under oath, but was not called to do so. There were no other witnesses in the Crown case. Even by the standards of the day, one couldn't hang a dog on the case made by Cook. But it didn't take the jury long to reach a verdict of guilty of treason. Rawley remained in the Tower for some years before James finally had the sentence carried out. Cook's involvement in this episode was shameful. In 1995, a summary of the prosecution brief prepared for Lord Ellesmere was discovered. It showed that after Cobham had made his statement implicating Rawley, he had retracted it before the investigators themselves. It's inconceivable that Cook didn't know of the retraction. The shame is that he never mentioned it. Cook's conduct in Rawley's trial was not that much worse than his conduct in the trial of Essex had been. But while there is a good argument that Essex was rightly convicted, even though one may have reservations uh, as to whether it really had been proved that he intended to harm the Queen, in Rawley's case, Cook was eagerly complicit in the judicial murder of a great man who was innocent of the charge by which he was brought down. Speaking generally of Cook's work as a barrister, and particularly as a prosecutor, it is true that in Cook's time, criminal trial procedure was very different from that with which we're familiar. The accused was unrepresented uh, and was subject to interrogation by the prosecutor and the judge. And he had no right to silence. The prevailing theory was that the prosecutor and the judge could be relied upon to ensure that the accused received a fair trial. Cook himself wrote in the third part of his institutes, the court ought to be of counsel for the prisoner to see that nothing be urged against him contrary to law and right. Cook's conduct as a prosecutor went a long way to demonstrating that this theory was pious folly. According to Professor Langbein, it was the work of defence counsel, once legal representation came to be permitted, which forged the adversarial system as we know it, with its inbuilt protections of the accused, including the right to silence and the privilege against self-incrimination. This work taking place between the mid-17th and as late as the 19th century. It's one of the ironies of history that the diligent work of defence counsel, most of the names of whom we don't know, over the subsequent decades culminated in the accusatorial system of criminal justice with its protections of the individual against the state, that this work was largely inspired as a reaction to the kind of abuses perpetrated by Cook, the iconic defender of the liberty of the subject. It is telling uh, in this regard that in the eyes of King James, Cook's performance as Attorney General qualified him for promotion. In early 1606, Robert Cecil indicated that appointment as Chief Justice of the Common Pleas might be in the offing. Cook, ever the controlling pedant, wrote to Cecil advising him of the proper procedure. I am bold to inform you of what course I must take, Cook said. First, I must be made sergeant which may be on Saturday next, and the Chief Justice on Monday. <laughs> there must be a writ for which my Lord Chancellor will have warrant, returnable on Saturday to call me to be a sergeant, and a warrant for the patent of the office of Chief Justice of the Common Pleas. In accordance with Cook's instructions, he was made a sergeant at law on the 20th of June and was ele elevated to the Chief Justiceship on 30 June. As Attorney General, Cook had been, as we will see, a champion of the royal prerogative in its very darkest aspect. As Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, his attitude toward the prerogative of the King would undergo an almost complete reversal. In his new position, he became a spokesman for the institutional claims of the courts of common law against the claims of the prerogative. Nicholas Fuller, a barrister and member of Parliament and an enthusiastic Puritan, in the course of defending Puritan clients on charges of contempt of the ecclesiastical court, known as the High Commission, insulted the bishops who constituted the court. He was imprisoned by them for contempt. The Court of Common Pleas issued writs of prohibition 
restraining the ecclesiastical courts from proceeding further against Fuller on the basis that the conduct of a barrister, even in an ecclesiastical court, was exclusively the province of the courts of common law, whose officer the barrister was. King sought to resolve the case himself in order to break what he perceived as an unseemly deadlock between his courts, which he saw as mere agents through which he exercised sovereign power. James's position was that his prerogative was supreme, given that, as he put it, there were kings before any parliaments were bidden or laws made. He arranged for a meeting of the ecclesiastical and common law judges to be held at Whitehall. The report of the meeting is called the Case of Prohibitions. At this meeting, James said, in cases where there is not express authority in law, the king may himself decide it in his royal person. The judges are but delegates of the king, and the king may take what causes he shall please from the determination of the judges and may determine them himself. Cook disagreed, saying that the king may consult with the judges but not decide cases himself. Growing agitated, the king said, as supreme head of justice, he would defend to the death his prerogative of calling judges before him to decide disputes of jurisdiction. Moreover, he would ever protect the common law. The common law, Cook interjected, protected the king. A traitorous speech, James shouted. King protecteth the law, and not the law the king. The king maketh judges and bishops. If the judges interpret the law themselves and suffer none else to interpret, they may easily make of the laws shipmen's hose. Cook's report of this incident takes up the story. Then the king said he thought that the law was founded upon reason and that he and others had reason as well as the judges, to which it was answered by me, that is Cook, that true it was that God had endowed his majesty with excellent science and great endowments of nature. But his majesty was not learned in the laws of the realm of England and causes which concern the life or inheritance or goods or fortunes of his subjects. Uh, and they are not to be decided by natural reason, but by artificial reason and judgment of law, which law is an act which requires long study and experience before that a man can attain to the cognizance of it, that the law was the golden met wand and measure to try the causes of the subjects uh, and which protected his majesty in safety and peace, with which the king was greatly offended and said that then he should be under the law, which was treason to affirm, as he said, to which I said, that Bracton saith, quod rex non habit esse sub homine sed sub deo et legae, that the king should not be under man, but under God and the law. Cook's report of this famous incident ends there. But we know from other sources that in fact the confrontation continued. The king rejected Cook's quotation from Bracton, and Cook fell weeping to his knees, begging forgiveness, but he was not beaten. Next morning a new prohibition under Cook's seal, went out to the High Commission from the Court of Common Pleas. Cook championed the supremacy of the common law as an essentially continuous body of law derived from Anglo-Saxon custom and reflecting natural law as Cook saw it. His view was that the authority of the common law predated the Norman Conquest, but he was not a disinterested champion in this. His position was polemical and political. In supporting the notion that the power of the king was itself the creature of the common law, Cook was supporting the claim of the judges, of whom he was now leader, to the lion's share of sovereign power. As a legal historian, Cook's scholarship was seriously, and possibly even deliberately, deficient. The historical reality was that the English judiciary were indeed the creature of Henry II, and the judges were directly dependent on the king, in whose name they dispensed justice throughout the realm. The judges of Henry's time even discussed their cases directly with him. As Ralph Turner has noted, the judges at the time of the Angevin kings often marked their cases loquendum cum regae, that is, to be discussed with the king. And as noted by Edward Rubin, the researches of Pollock and Maitland amply demonstrated that as a matter of history, it is to Henry II, Henry II and his justiciars, that we must look for the creation of the common law as a body of rules administered equally throughout the realm. In this, the better view of the historical development of the common law of the king and the sovereign power embodied in it, embodied in the crown, was the true fountain of justice. The king was not the mere creature of the common law. We can detect echoes of Cook's argument in the observations of Lord Steyne in the House of Lords in 
Jackson and the Attorney General, to the effect that while the supremacy of Parliament is the basic principle of the United Kingdom Constitution, the principle itself uh, is a construct of the common law created by judges who might, in some circumstances, create qualifications to the principle. Admirers of Henry II or of Oliver Cromwell would probably respond that the British constitutional principle as to the supremacy of Parliament might have been described by the judges of the common law, but the principle that they were describing was established as a political fact by means other than the decisions of the courts. The second and more obvious point about this episode is that Cook did not consistently maintain the view he then espoused. As we have, as we have seen, when his interest in his own advancement coincided with the advancement of the office uh, which he held, he spoke in favour of the absolute authority of the Parliament. Cook's conduct as Chief Justice of the Common Pleas did not endear him to James, and he fell into disfavour. Upon the death of Cook's friend Robert Cecil in May 1612, Cook's arch-rival, Francis Bacon, was at last able to gain greater influence with the King, and Bacon sought to isolate Cook. Bacon's opportunity came in August 1613, when Chief Justice Fleming of the King's Bench died. Bacon proposed to the King that Cook be removed from the Common Pleas and transferred to the King's Bench. Bacon made the cynical suggestion that as Chief Justice, Lord Cook would see the coveted position of Privy, Council, Privy Councillor dangling and thereupon turn obsequious. The King agreed and Cook became Chief Justice of England on the 25th of October 1613. As Chief Justice of the King's Bench, he continued to frustrate the prerogative by promoting the supervisory jurisdiction of the common law courts over what he regarded as inferior tribunals. Writs of prohibition were issued to the Chancery and to the High Court of Admiralty. The jurisdictional war waged by Cook came to a head in the case of the Commendams, which concerned the right of the King to fill benefices of the Church of England as they became vacant. When James became aware that it was being argued in the Exchequer Court that the King had no right to fill these benefices, he commanded Cook, by a letter from his Attorney General Bacon, to halt proceedings until after he had given the matter his personal consideration. Cook proceeded in defiance of the royal instruction, uh, and Cook drafted his famous letter to James, which was signed by 12 judges, in which he said, we have advisedly considered the said letter of Mr. Mr. Attorney Bacon, and with one consent to hold the same to be contrary to law, and such as we could not yield to the same by our oath. The King responded by summoning the judges to Whitehall. The King, in the presence of Ellesmere and 17 of his privy councillors, demanded of the judges why they had not um, checked and bridled the impudent lawyers who encroached not only on the prerogative, but upon all other courts of justice. The judge's letter was itself a new thing, very indecent, and unfit for subjects to disobey the King's commandment, but most of all to proceed in the meantime. James then tore the judge's letter up. The twelve judges fell to their knees, begging pardon. Seeking to mollify the King, they humbly confessed that their letter, drafted by Cook, was wrong in form. That while Cook would accept that the letter might have been better expressed, he wouldn't yield on the point of principle. Still on his knees, he faced the king and said, the stay required by your majesty was a delay of justice and therefore contrary to law and the judge's oath. James described this response as mere sophistry and asked Ellesmere for his opinion on the lawfulness of the stay. The wily Ellesmere was not to be drawn into this crisis between the king and his judges. In one of English legal history's most oleaginous moments, Ellesmere responded to the king's question by saying that the king's attorneys were better qualified than he to answer. Bacon seized his chance and attacked the judges for dereliction of duty. Cook, still on his knees, turned to Bacon and said, I take exception. The king's counsel learned are to plead before the judges and not, not dispute with them. Bacon struck back a strange exception. By oath and office, the king's learned counsel are to proceed against judge, peer or house of parliament, should the king's prerogative be called into question. James agreed with Bacon and Cook gave in. I will not dispute with your majesty. By now, James had enough of Cook, and Bacon took the opportunity to ensure the downfall of his great rival. He drew up a lengthy document entitled Innovations into the Laws and Government Recounting Cook's Offences. Seventeen charges were listed, 
invited the king, and he invited the king to discharge my Lord Cook from the place of Chief Justice of your bench. Bacon said, I also send a warrant to the Lord Chancellor for making forth a writ for the new Chief Justice, leaving a blank for the name to be supplied by your majesty. <laughs> the king executed the form of discharge which was sent to Cook in his chambers. The discharge stated, for certain causes now moving us, we will that you shall be no longer our Chief Justice to hold pleas before us, and we command you that you no longer interfere in that office, and by virtue of this presence, we at once remove and exonerate you from the same. Cook read the letter, then bowed his head and wept. This was in November 1616. Earlier, on the 20th of June 1616, James himself had sat in the Star Chamber, something that no monarch had done since Henry VIII. James began by intoning, Give thy judgments to the king, O Lord, and thy righteousness of the king's son. Kings are properly called judges, and judgment properly belongs to them from God. For kings sit in the throne of God, and thence all judgment is derived. It is atheism and blasphemy to dispute what God can do. So it is presumption and high contempt in a subject to dispute what a king can do, or say that a king cannot do this or that. I remember Christ saying, My sheep hear my voice, and show I, so I assure myself, my people most, will most willingly hear the, the voice of me, their own shepherd and king. Now, on any view, this is pretty loopy stuff. And the Stuarts didn't improve after James I. The Stuart family can be seen as God's way of making the point that the divine right of kings was a very bad theory of government. <laughs> William Butler Yeats wrote that a man's greatest glory lay in his friends. Perhaps Cook's greatest glory was that he had such enemies. If nothing else, the spectacle of the king using the court of Star Chamber as a forum for the solemn proclamation and enforcement of his theory of the divine right of the king to concentrate on himself all the powers of government ensured that the Star Chamber would be, would be abolished just as the political nation would reject the theory of divine right. Time would show that in the struggle for judicial independence from the Crown, Cook had the better of the argument with Bacon and the king. The constitutional settlement at the end of the 17th century reformed the position of the judiciary in relation to the Crown while the judges continued to be appointed by the king, their work became independent of the crown in a real sense because they no longer continued to serve at the king's pleasure. So far as the system of justice is concerned, this was one of the great successes of the Whig project. Until the reign of William III, the judges were appointed durante bene placito, that is, during the king's pleasure. From the beginning of the reign of William III, the judges were appointed quam diu se bene gesserent, that is, for as long as they are of good behaviour. And importantly, the judge of judicial misbehaviour was not the king, but the parliament. And so Cook's courage in his battle over the power of the king to control his judges was ultimately vindicated. It may be said that his courage was shored up by the alignment of his self-interest and the institutional interest of the courts on which he sat. It might even be said that, as Macaulay wrote, Cook's opposition to the court was the effect not of good principles, but of a bad temper. But making due allowance for all these things, Cook's courage is undeniable and still very impressive. As Macaulay said, he was a pedant, bigot and brute, but nevertheless an exception to the maxim that those who trample on the helpless are disposed to cringe to the powerful. Can I say something now about Cook the scholar? In 1615, King James and his son Charles went to Trinity College, Cambridge, watched the performance of a play written by George Ruggle. The play was a comedy the principal character in which was a pompous, silly old Inns of Court lawyer named Ignoramus. This name was borrowed from the old legal procedure, whereby grand juries who were unable to find a case worthy to be tried wrote on the indictment Ignoramus, that is, we don't know. It was from this play that the word Ignoramus came into common English usage, meaning an ignorant and foolish person. Ignoramus was intended to be a parody of a local lawyer who had given grief to Cambridge University. But as soon as the character appeared on stage, dressed ostentatiously in his robes, everyone in the audience identified him as Edward Cook. He strutted about the stage, spouting bad schoolboy Latin. Quata es clockanunc, he asked when he wanted to know the time, much to the laughter and applause of the king and the aristocratic crowd, who were all, of course, well-versed in Latin. Cook tried to have the play suppressed, but acknowledged that never did anything so hit the king's humour as this play did. He was humiliated. His cherished alma mater had held him up to public ridicule and had done so in front of the king. 
James liked the play so much he saw it twice. <laughs> Cook's critics teased him for not being able to take a joke, which of course was completely true. And this teasing, which was unlikely to have been harmless fun, added to his ill humour. The Lord Chief Justice wrote Chamberlain, both openly at the King's Bench and diverse other places, as galled and glanced at scholars with much bitterness. While it is no doubt unfair that a public man of Cook's eminence should have been dismissed in fashionable court circles as a pedantic and posturing fuddy-duddy, the ignoramus episode makes a significant point about Cook as a scholar, which is all the stronger because of its contemporaneity. The point is that his scholarship was so polemical in its tone and partisan in its content that it was inevitable that he should become a political target for those of his contemporaries who disagreed with him. It also became a target for later, later scholars who thought that historians should aspire to a degree of objectivity. When Cook left the bench, he returned to Parliament. Here he made his greatest contribution to the English articulation of the relationship between the individual and the state as the author of the Petition of Right. The Petition of Right set out in clear and unambiguous terms what Cook regarded as the pre-existing rights of Englishmen to be free from martial law, billeting of soldiers, non-parliamentary taxation and imprisonment without cause. The petition was initially resisted by the Crown, but the pressure of Parliament eventually proved too great. It was Cook who was active in securing its passage through the Parliament. On 7 June 1628, King Charles I capitulated and gave the petition his unqualified assent. The existence of some fundamental rights of individuals was definitively established and the scope of the royal prerogative was substantially reduced. In the course of his work as parliamentary spokesman for what would later become recognisable as the Whig position in English politics, Cook became the sponsor of the adulatory view of Magna Carta, what Edward Jenks described as the myth of Magna Carta. Speaking of Cook's time, Jenks said, it was an age in which historical discoveries were received with credulity in which canons of historical criticism were yet unformulated. Doubtless more than one of Cook's contemporaries, John Selden, for example, must have had a fairly shrewd idea that Cook was mingling his politics with his historical research, but for the most part, those competent to criticise Cook's research were of his, his way of thinking in politics and did not feel called upon to quarrel with their own supporter. Zeal for historical truth is apt to pale before the fiercer flame of zeal for political victory. It is a tribute to Cook's character and ability that he imposed his ingenious but unsound historical doctrines not only on an uncritical age but on succeeding ages which deemed themselves critical. In the course of Cook's promotion of the Petition of Right and in his second book on the Institutes written after he left the bench, he presented Magna Carta to the political nation as a guarantee of individ individual liberty and parliamentary government. Cook's work provided the foundational myth of the English state which inspired the English Whigs and it was this inspiration which also drove the political imagination of the American colonists. It was Cook the visionary politician and not Cook the judge whose work was the great dynamic force in the movement to constitutional monarchy in England over the succeeding centuries. In an address in March this year to the Friends of the British Library, Lord Sumption made the point that before Cook, English ideas of limited government owed more to Aristotle and Aquinas than to Magna Carta, until Cook began to trumpet Magna Carta as an original expression of the special English genius for constitutional government, Magna Carta had virtually no claim on the English imagination. Lord Sumption made the telling point that in Shakespeare's play King John, there is no mention at all of the famous incident at Runnymede in 1215. In the Institutes, which included Cook on Littleton, he attempted an authoritative and comprehensive statement of the common law. I'm confident that none of you has ever read it. None of you are any the worse for that. Indeed, you are fortunate not to have had to grapple with Cook's prose. It's no accident that no one has ever speculated that Cook, rather than Bacon, might have been the true author of the works of Shakespeare. <laughs> Dr Macpherson, in the reception of English law abroad, explained that the enormous and immediate success of Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England upon its publication in 1765 occurred because, in contrast to the incoherent mass of Cook on Littleton, so described by the brilliant John Quincy Adams, Blackstone's commentaries presented a comprehensible, clear and elegant statement of the common law. 
In Cook's academic work, his overweening concern for his own reputation led him again to be less than candid. In the third volume of his Institutes, which was published after his death, he famously asserted that there is no law to warrant tortures in this land. In truth, although torture was not authorised under the common law, it was authorised in England under the royal prerogative when treason or sedition were alleged. Torture did occur pursuant to warrants issued in the name of the monarch and Cook's name appears on seven warrants authorising the torture of Catholics and Puritans. One of Cook's more important scholarly contributions was the establishment of the law reports. He produced the first full set of the law reports in England it was not so much the quality of the reports themselves that was important, but it was the idea that it was essential then and now to the common law as a system founded upon judicial observance of precedent that the precedents should be collected and made available to the profession and the judges for application to like cases. The importance of this aspect of, of Cook's contribution to the common law can't be overstated. Bacon himself said that before Cook's reports, the law hath been like a ship without ballast. It's noteworthy that a partial set of Cook's reports travelled to America on the Mayflower. Cook spent the later decades of his life at his home at Stoke House, working principally on his reports and updating his commentaries on Little Littleton. By this time, he and his wife had effectively separated. By late 1634, he was dying. Stubborn to the end, he refused medical assistance. As he lay dying, Charles I issued a warrant to search his home. The King's officers took away manuscripts of four parts of his institutes and the manuscript notes for two additional books of his reports. His chambers at the temple were also searched. As I said, perhaps his greatest glory was that he had these people for enemies. Turning then, after all this, to his judicial legacy. One aspect of his judicial legacy warrants particular attention. It might fairly be said that judicial activism, that apparently modern phenomenon which so excites some commentators, who curiously also tend to be admirers of Sir Edward Cook, actually reached its apogee in the early 17th century when Cook made the claim for judicial power that was apt to exalt the judiciary over the legislature as the principal voice of sovereign power. Most famously in Dr Bonham's case, Cook wrote, In many cases the common law will control acts of parliament and sometimes adjudge them to be utterly void. For when an act of parliament is against common right and reason or repugnant or impossible to be performed, the common law will control it and adjudge such act to be void. It's difficult not to see the Beckett syndrome at work here. But it must also be said that Cook was speaking in support of a view with deep roots in natural law thinking. The idea that the exposition of the law was a matter for learned men, steeped in tradition and for them only. That mindset was very much at odds with the radical Protestant view that individuals can find their way to truth for themselves without the mediation of a priestly caste. And when Cook spoke of the common law as an abstraction, the practical political reality, well understood by his contemporaries, as his exchanges with the King show, was that he was promoting the supremacy of the judges over the King and Parliament. At this historic crossroads, Cook's great rival, Francis Bacon, took the road that led to parliamentary supremacy. In the course of argument in Chudley's case, in which fittingly Bacon and Cook were opposed as counsel, Bacon argued that the judge's authority over the laws of England was merely to expound them faithfully and apply them properly. The English civil wars of the 17th century established in the most emphatic way that Francis Bacon had the better of this argument. The claim of the Parliament to be the sole organ of government representative of the people to say what the law should be was established in England following the constitutional settlement at the end of the 17th century. At that time, any claim of the judiciary for the larger share of sovereign law-making power remained dormant until the founding of the United States. Shortly after that founding, the great judgment of Marbury and Madison, great judgment of Chief Justice Marshall in that case, established that the Supreme Court of the United States could invalidate acts of Congress held by the judges to be inconsistent with the Constitution. Cook's observations in Dr Bonham's case might be thought to have foreshadowed the strong form of judicial review established in Marbury and Madison, but to the disappointment of those who would claim Cook as the originator of judicial review, it is noteworthy that Dr Bonham's case was not even mentioned in the celebrated judgment of Chief Justice Marshall. Marshall's decision in Marbury and Madison was founded squarely on the eminently practical ground 
that interpreting written documents is simply what judges do and what they had always done within the common law tradition. Constitutional adjudication he saw as an exercise in interpreting the effect of the Constitution as a written document. And that exercise was of a piece with work which characterises the work of the judges in interpreting deeds and wills and written contracts. For Marshall, there was simply no occasion to seek more direct authority for the great principle of judicial review. His insight that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is reflected the practical experience of practising lawyers that declaring what the law is is simply a characteristic, of, a characteristic function of judges in the common law tradition. This practical and institutional approach formed by the separation of powers affected by the US Constitution is, of course, a very different thing from the doctrinaire and, it must be said, highly authoritarian approach of Dr. Cook, uh, of, of Cook in Dr. Bonham's case. In conclusion, uh, as to Cook's claim to be regarded as a hero judge, we might say, viewing his work through the prism of the separation of powers, that Cook was too committed to politics and to his political vision to meet modern notions of a truly great judge. That wouldn't be very fair. That Cook played such a prominent role in politics, even while on the bench, is hardly surprising, given that in his time, no one saw government through the prism of the separation of powers. But putting that aside, the story of British constitutional and legal development, while adorned with famous names like those of Cook, is not a story of the work of hero judges, but rather, as with the evolution of the adversarial system, of a practical process of iteration from generation to generation of lawyers of the bench and the profession, whereby the nation's legal institutions moved, sometimes slowly, and often tentatively and uncertainly to meet the nation's needs in an ongoing process of self-definition. If one were to attempt to sum up Cook's career in a sentence, one might say that Cook was a brave but partial judge, a prolific but partisan and unreliable scholar, and a truly appalling barrister. <laughs> but he was also a very great politician he was the maker of the foundational myth that, it, that inspired the Whig project in England and the United States. But it's perhaps best to leave the last word about Cook to the long-suffering Lady Hatton, his wife of 36 years, who said upon his death, the age of 82, we shall never see his like again. Praise be to God. <laughs> Thank you for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Selden Society Lecture Series podcast. Please consider leaving a rating or review. We'd appreciate your constructive feedback. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast series to ensure future lectures are added to your podcast feed. A video of the lecture and a copy of the paper are available on the Supreme Court Library Queensland website. A link's provided in the podcast notes. Thanks for listening.